I forgot to do this earlier, but let's see who's been married the longest, all right? So I know we have at least one couple that's going to be coming up on their 40th anniversary, so we can start there. Raise your hand if you've been married 40 years or more. 40, okay. Over 45? What about you guys? 42? What about you, Pastor Allen? 40? Oh, you're tied here? We're going to have to go down to the specific day. What about anniversaries? March 21st? Oh, your voice is out. Sorry, I don't want to ask you to yell it. Are you serious? Well, this is the closest I've ever seen before. You just barely beat him by eight days there. Well, that's wonderful. Huh. All right, well, who's traveled, who's traveled the furthest? I think I know the answer to this. But some, one couple knew my wife, and they, they came here today. But who's traveled, anyone traveled more than three hours? Didn't you guys? Okay, that's, okay, four or four and a half hours or something like that. Yeah, well, they're, they're, none of you guys are keeping up with them. They're, they're traveled really far distance. So I just feel very humbled at marriage conferences because I, I definitely, and if I haven't said this before, you know, I don't have it all figured out. And pretty much the only reason I even feel comfortable standing here, and I mean this sincerely, is I'm telling you what God's word says. If I had to stand up here and tell you my thoughts or my wisdom on marriage, I would never be able to put on a marriage conference. So hopefully I'm relaying to you what scripture says, which is where all of our confidence is. Now, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians 5 for our last message, and I'll open us in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time. I do thank you for your word. I believe these people have come here because that's what they've wanted to hear, and and hopefully that's what has been relayed, Lord. And I thank you for the institution of marriage. We see it's under attack today as the family is and as churches are. And so I pray for strong marriages. I feel I am convinced that strong marriages produce strong families. Strong families produce strong churches. Strong churches affect society. And so I pray, Lord, for strong marriages. If for no other reason, then we can better serve you, be a blessing to you and have strong churches for your name and your testimony, Lord. And so I do pray for this last message, that you would help us to give us almost a a supernatural um, understanding and and focus to really be attentive to everything that you want to say to us through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. So how wives ought to respect their husbands, our last message, how wives ought to respect their husbands. So Ephesians 5, hopefully that's where you are during a counseling session, there was a wife that had an epiphany, and she, I, I want to share it because I believe it can apply to many other wives, and so they, this couple enjoyed doing projects on their house together, <clears throat> and they had shared that they always ended up fighting. They said even when they tried to do things together, they ended up fighting, and they could go out on dates, they could do other things without fighting, but whenever they were doing a project on the house together, it ended with conflict, and it was very confusing to them, and the husband explained that it seems like nothing I do is ever good enough for my wife. She picks apart all of my decisions. No matter what I think, she always responds with a better way for things to be done. And when the husband shared this, and I could tell that the wife was genuinely confused about her husband's frustration because she thought that she was simply being what? Helpful, that's right. She thought she was being a good helper, a good help me. It wasn't until this session that she realized that what she thought was helpful was actually hurtful, or what, let's say what she considered to be respectful, her husband actually considered to be disrespectful. And so sometimes a wife can have good intentions, but a husband can still feel disrespected. That's one of the, that's the problem. That's what we're going to be largely discussing. And this brings us to lesson one. Husbands must feel like their wives respect them. Lesson one, husbands must feel like their wives respect them. And you might, we talked about the word feel earlier. Do you guys remember that? (laughs) 
It's about how the spouse feels because of the number of times I'd be in marriage counseling. And a husband would say, I don't think my wife respects me. And then I look at the wife and what does she say? Well, you know, of course I respect you. Of course, or she'll look at me and say, of course I respect my husband. And so it's not about what a, if I word it this way and I say, it's about whether a husband feels respected. Now it's not about what a wife claims. It's about how the husband ends up feeling. And I, and I found so frequently in counseling that that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get one person to understand how the other person feels. I'm trying to get a husband to stop saying, yes, I love my wife. Look at all these things I'm doing and trying to get the husband to consider how his actions make his wife feel and get the wife to consider how her husband's make her actions make her her husband feel. Most of the marriage passage deals with a husband loving his wife. So if we didn't already know how this marriage passage concludes and we reached verse 33 because it's been talking so much about husbands loving their wives, we would expect it to say this. Let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself and let the wife love her husband as herself. But instead we read, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Nothing about wives loving their husbands here. Now before we go any further, I want to make an important point. This is not to imply that wives don't want to be respected. And when we talk about husbands loving their wives, it is not to imply that husbands don't want to be respected. In fact, there's at least one place in the New Testament where it discusses wives loving their husband, right? In Titus 2, it says the older women are supposed to teach what? Younger women, too, love their husbands. And there's one place in Scripture, I believe in the last message, 1 Peter 3, 7, that seems to discuss husbands respecting their wives. And that when it says to honor your wife, that's almost synonymous with respect. So we're not implying that because the Bible commands husbands to love their wives, that husbands themselves don't want to be loved, or because the Bible commands wives to respect their husbands, that um, wives don't want to be respected. It's just that between the two, it is more important for a husband to love his wife, and it is more important for a wife to respect her husband, which is what the Bible um, emphasizes. Back in verse 42, Paul commanded wives to submit to their husbands, and now he commands them to respect their husbands. So is there a difference? There is a difference. There is a difference between submission and respect. Submission, as we talked about in our third message, deals with the way a wife responds to her husband when she disagrees with him. Submission is all about how a wife responds to her husband when she disagrees with him. Respect deals with the way that a wife treats her husband on a day-to-day basis throughout the relationship, whether she agrees with him or not, how she causes him to feel about himself. Women are natural nurturers, and so because of this, it is often much easier for a wife to say, I love you, than for her to show it through her respect. Let me say that one more time. Women are naturally more nurturing, typically more affectionate than men, so it's easier for a wife to tell her husband, I love you, than for a, a, wife, to, than for a wife to communicate that through her respect. Wives should understand that they express their love for their husband by respecting him. And the reason I stress this is because if a wife says that she loves her husband, but he feels disrespected by her, he's also going to feel unloved. Let me say that one more time. Even if a wife claims to love her husband, if she disrespects him, he is going to feel unloved by her. When I listen to wives share their frustration toward their husbands, it usually sounds like this. 
I don't, feel, I don't feel like my husband loves me. I wish my husband loved me more. When I listen to husbands share their frustrations toward their wives, I don't hear them saying, I wish my wife loved me more. I hear husbands saying, I wish my wife respected me more. I wish my wife supported my decisions, followed my lead. And just as important as it is for wives to be loved, it's equally important for husbands to be respected. A good perspective for husbands and wives to keep in mind is this. As painful as it is for a woman to feel unloved, it is equally painful for a man to feel disrespected. And as painful as it is for a man to feel disrespected, it is equally painful for a woman to feel unloved. Now let me ask you something. If God is going to command wives to respect their husbands, what is the world going to do? And we kind of talked about this in the last message. If the Bible is going to command wives to respect their husbands, what is the world going to try to do? Make it look like men should not be respected. In the previous message, we talked about God's command for husbands to understand their wives and the lengths the world goes to to make women appear as though they cannot be understood. Well, conversely, if the Bible is going to command wives to respect their husbands, then the world is going to make men look like they should not be respected. And we see this in commercials, television, shows, books, general counsel from ungodly women, almost all media produced by the world makes husbands look like they're bumbling, they are foolish, they're incompetent, they're inept, they cannot be trusted to do anything. The world is making it even harder for men to be leaders. Women have to do things because men can't be trusted to do it. A common theme is that women must take matters into their own hands because there's no way that they could trust their husbands to do what needs to be done. So ladies, I just want to encourage you to remember that when you disrespect your husband, you're supporting the world. And this is why I don't think it's funny when the world makes jokes about women not being able to be understood. And similarly, I do not think it's funny when the world makes jokes that make men look bumbling and foolish and that they should not be respected. And so wives want to remember that when they disrespect their husband, they're supporting the world's agenda versus supporting God's agenda. Now I'll deal with one of the more common questions I received. How am I supposed to respect my husband when I don't feel like I can respect him? Just like love is a choice, and that's a very reasonable, understandable question. But just like love is a choice, so too is respect a choice. A husband chooses whether to love his wife. We, uh, we could not be commanded to love our enemies if love was not a choice. Well, similarly, wives would not be able to be commanded to respect their husbands unless respect is what? A choice. It is not a feeling or emotion. And that's, a, that's probably a paradigm shift for some people. Now, I'm not saying men can't make it harder to respect them, just like I'm not saying that women can't make it harder to love them, but all of the women need to recognize that just like it is a choice whether a husband loves his wife, it is a choice whether a wife respects her husband. So what does it look like for wives to respect their husbands? It looks like admiring him, holding him in high regard, supporting him, being his biggest encourager. A wife respects her husband by considering how hard he works to take care of the family, considering the sacrifices he makes to be a good father and husband. A wife respects her husband by being a wife that her husband can trust. Let me share a few verses from Proverbs 31 about the virtuous wife. Proverbs 31:11, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. And why does he trust her? He trusts her because he knows that when he's not around, she's going to act in a way that would please him as if he was there. 
He knows that she's not going to hide anything from him. Two become one during marriage, and hiding things communicates that a wife doesn't respect her husband's position as the head of the household. He trusts her because he knows that she protects his name and reputation. Listen to this interesting verse in the virtuous wife passage. Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is respected in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Does it seem odd? Okay, well, let me say it like this. Her husband's respected in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Is that verse about the husband or the wife? It's kind of a trick question. It's about the wife because the point is he would not be there without her. This verse looks like it's about the husband, but it's in the end of the virtuous wife passage, which begs the question, why would God be talking about the virtuous wife and then talk about the husband? He never stopped talking about the wife. <laughs> he never stopped. He never started talking. The, the instruction didn't suddenly change from wives to husbands. God didn't suddenly say, hey, husbands, make sure you're respected in the gates. That's not what's going on there. The point is, it is a credit to the wife that he sits there. The idea is he would never be respected among the elders of the land if not for the wife that he has. It is a credit to her that he can be in this position because he wouldn't be there without her. If he had a wife who embarrassed him by the way that she acted, he would never be a leader in the church or the community. Now, sadly, I have met men who probably could be, and I hate to say this, this is painful. I have met men who probably could be elders if not for the women that they married. Does that make sense? There was even one man we've talked about repeatedly over the years being an elder, but every single conversation we come back to the same point, we can never let him become an elder because of his wife. And there are men who will never reach positions of prominence or leadership within the church or the community not because of their character, but simply because of the women that they marry. And you say, well, is that biblical? Because all the qualifications deal with character. Well, one of the qualifications for elders is that their home is what? Is an order, and it can be a woman, a wife, not necessarily just children, who disqualify him from that position. Imagine a wife who talks badly about her husband behind his back. Nobody's going to respect him because she destroys his credibility. Well, wives should strive to do is let others hear about her husband's best qualities. So ladies, give me your attention as I share something important for you. As you look for your husband's best qualities, as you focus on your husband's strengths, as you speak well of your husband to others, as you praise your husband to your children, guess what's going to happen? You're going to find it much easier to respect your husband you're going to find your respect for him increasing. And what happens is generally our feelings and emotions follow our actions. So whenever people tell me I'm having trouble forgiving this person, well, I say, well, you need to be kind to them because if you choose to behave this way, you will find your feelings and emotions following your behaviors and actions. So as a woman chooses to respect her husband by her actions, she will then find her respect for him growing. But if you talk badly about your husband to, to others, including the children, you're going to find your respect for your husband disappearing. So let me say it like this. Ladies, your husband is not going to have any trouble living up to or down to whatever bar you set for him. 
If you disrespect him, if you talk to him like he's a child, then do not be surprised if he seems more childish. If you criticize your husband, if you treat him like he's a little boy who's in trouble, then do not be surprised if your husband starts to look more like a little boy who's in trouble. But if you respect your husband, if you praise him, if you encourage him, if you, you're going to see him strive to live up to that standard, to be the man that you think is. And if I can just be super candid with you, I am not the man that Katie thinks I am. I'm not. She speaks too well of me to others. She speaks too well of me to me. But every single time that I know Katie says something positive about me in a message to me or to other people, guess what happens? I become convicted about how much I'm not like she's saying, but I want to live up to that standard. You are never going to get your husband to be a better man by slandering him or criticizing him. But every time my wife sends me a message about the kind of husband or father that she thinks I am, it always does the same thing. It convicts me positively, like she's sending me a complimentary nice message. I read that and I become convicted that I'm not more like that and it makes me want to be like the man that she is describing. Now let's imagine a terrible situation, such as a wife who's married to an abusive husband. I'm not saying that she can never seek help because that would mean saying bad things about him. It's just that she should share those bad things about her husband. And this is really the case whether your husband's abused or not. I'm never saying you can't, because we talked earlier, if a wife is going to help her husband, I cannot tell you the number of times Katie has criticized me to my face in an incredibly helpful way. (laughs) When we have left a conversation or we have left an event and she said, that person was in the middle of talking, you were not listening to them, you interrupted them, you made this joke, it sounded rude. And those are all very helpful things for me to hear. So I am not saying that a wife can never say bad things about her husband to him or share his weaknesses with him. That can be very helpful. And I'm also not saying that if a wife's in an abusive situation, she can never go to the elders of the church. But can we see a world of difference between the things that you say to your husband in private versus the things that you say about your husband to others, even the children? And so, I, I mean, how much time do we have? You know, we have to, I can't tell you all my weaknesses as a father. But when Katie wants to address those weaknesses, is there a way that she can do it and still allow me to be respected by the children? She can talk to me later in privately in our room and say, you know, you looked worse than the kids in that moment. One of our children looked more mature than you did. And then I can go out and I can apologize to our children and ask for forgiveness versus her chopping me down in front of them and causing them to think less of me because they see the way that my wife talks to me. So ladies, share it privately with the elders, share it privately with your husband. Don't share it with your girlfriends in the middle of the church get-together. A wife also disrespects her husband when she's regularly discontent with her life, her home, her income, her clothes, her vehicle. Discontentment makes a husband feel like a failure. Can you imagine why? When a wife is discontent with her house, her home, her life, why does the husband feel like a failure? Because he's the one who apparently is not providing well enough for her. A wife also disrespects her husband when she talks down to him, belittles him, treats him like a child, makes him feel like a little boy in trouble, rolls her eyes, huffs and puffs, wags her finger at him, interrupts him and talks over him. There was a man who was standing in this circle. We were at church and he's talking to this group and 
he was doing fine. He probably wasn't the most articulate um, man you can imagine, but he was getting the details of his story across. And so his wife comes up and kind of breaks into the middle of the circle. And in the middle of him sharing, she kind of rolls her eyes and she goes like, she puts her hand in front of her husband's face and she says, let me tell you what happened. And then, so she interrupts him and then she finishes his story to all of the people. You can just see him basically look down like this. It clearly embarrassed him. And this is what I thought. If this woman would be that brash so as to disrespect her husband like this in public, at a church, in front of other people, I cannot imagine how disrespectful this woman must be to her husband behind closed doors. If she'd act this way here, it must look 10 times worse at at home when nobody's around. So ladies, when you disagree with your husband, talk to him privately. You also disrespect your husband when you tell funny stories about his inability to do things or how many times it took him to fix something. So I'm, I'm notoriously not handy. And my, I just don't have the skill set. I spent most of my life reading, studying, uh, going to college, being behind a desk, reading books, writing, things like that. I don't know how to fix houses. I don't know how to fix cars. So when I show up at church work days, it's almost like I'm there just for fellowship. People are like, hey, there's Pastor Scott. Make sure you don't give him a power tool sort of thing. Does that make sense? And so, but it's like, hey, give him a shovel, you know, and I'm like, we really need a ditch dug? And they're probably like, we don't really need a ditch dug, but we just figure if you dig this ditch, you won't cause any problems or hurt anyone, you know, type of thing. So that's me. So one time with this understanding of my ability or inability, what is significant or insignificant to someone is very significant to me. So I've, we have guys in our church who build houses. They build their own houses. It's like shocking to me. I cannot imagine that there are men who have the skills to build their own house. I look at them and I'm, I go to their house and I'm like, I can't believe you built this. And I'm serious. It's just like so impressive to me. So some guys could fix things very easily. But to me, if I fix those things, it would be like building a house. That's how big of a deal it is, right? And so we had this fence. We have this fence behind our house and the gate on this fence is, is falling down. And so I go out there one day and I'm going to fix this. Now, for most men, to fix a fence like this would not be a big deal. To me, it was a pretty intimidating project. But I went out there, and I seemed to have been able to fix the fence and had done so uh, surprisingly well. At least least I was surprised by how well it was fixed. And so I go in the house, and I tell Katie, and I say, hey, I just want to let you know the gate that's behind the house that was falling down, I fixed it. So here's what Katie could have said. She could have said, well, you know, wow, that's really great. I mean, what took you so long? Or it's been falling over for months here. And, you know, most husbands probably would have taken care of this, you know, a year ago. When, when, when are you going to get, okay, that's nice, but when are you going to get around to fixing all the other things around the house? Well, instead, she says, oh, that's wonderful. Let's go take a, a look at it. And so she walks outside the house with me, and we're standing there, and we're kind of looking at the fence, and she kind of puts her arm around me, and she says, hey, you did a really great job on this. I'm really proud of you. And I kind of went, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess it does look pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I didn't do that outwardly. I definitely did that inwardly, but I didn't want her to see that. But here's the point. The point is, it, it was, she made it a big deal. And she made it seem like she was proud of me. And that was meaningful to me because I'm just not able to do, to do these sorts of things. We move into this new house. And uh, we're, we're, Katie says, you know, there's no hot water. And I go and I try other faucets. And this is how kind of... Um, incompetent I am in this area that it took me a little while to figure out that the hot water heater had not been turned on. So I need to light the pilot light on this water tank and to just the, you know, the realization of being able to, uh, you know, just the thought of doing this was kind of intimidating because you go out and you're looking at this, at this hot water tank and I have no 
idea what I'm doing, and the, the tank itself looks more like a bomb, doesn't it? <laughs> and on the outside of the tank, there's this warning sticker, and it's got these flames going up, and someone's running away from the flames. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, I can't believe this. I'm going to blow up my family. I'm going to blow up my family when I try to light this thing. And, and so I even called one of the elders in the church, and I'm like, what, what's going on here? And he's like, you know, if you read the instruction, you're, pro- you're probably going to be able to do it. And because I do so little hands-on things like this, and I want to do one of the, my weaknesses as a father is I'm, I know that I'm not equipping, equipping my sons to be, to be better than me in this area. And so it's like, if I'm going to do a hands-on thing, I'm going to make sure one of my, kid, my boys are there with me to see this. But then I'm contrasting this, and I'm like, okay, what's... I'm weighing the advantages and disadvantages. The advantage of having my boys with me is that they learn how to do this. The disadvantage is that if I blow this thing up, then I'm going to end up blowing up my sons too, you know? So it actually crossed my mind that I should take all of my family and put them out on the street while I try to light this, while I try to light this tank just to make sure that I'm the only one who dies when this thing blows up. And so I did successfully get it lit, and then I kind of go in the house, and I told Katie, and this is only recent, this is a few months ago, and I said, I just want to let you know, why don't you go and try the water in a little bit? And so she turns the water on, and, and it, there's hot water. And I said, hey, I just want to let you know, I just had to light that pilot light on the tank, got to fix it. She comes over, you know, and she's really proud of me and puts her arms around me and acts like it's this, this really big deal. And so I notice things like that. That allows, me to feel disres- that allows me to feel respected. I mean, what could she have said? I can't believe you were scared of turn- lighting a hot water tank. You know, what kind, of, what kind of husband are you that can't even provide his family with hot water or something? I mean, those are the kinds of things that would cause a husband to feel very disrespected, but because she responded this way, I remember these instances of times of her making me feel very respected. Now, we need to talk about a very difficult balancing act. Part of the way wives serve as their husband's helper is by making suggestions, offering criticisms, pointing out when something is probably going to fail, right? If we're doing a pro, or like that one couple, if they're doing a project, the wife can recognize that the husband might want to do something that's going to fail. And so this is why a balancing act develops here. I'm not saying a wife can never be the helper who points out the weaknesses, criticisms, but I do know this. A husband is going to feel incredibly disrespected if a wife questions every choice he makes. If a wife second guesses everything he says, if she always offers the reasons that he wrong, he's wrong, if she's always chopping him off at the knees whenever he makes a decision. So the balancing act is sometimes when wives think they're being helpful, they actually are being helpful, and there's other times that they're being hurtful. Other times a wife's actions can scream, I don't trust you. You don't know what you're doing. I could do this better than you. It usually sounds like this. Why are you doing it that way? What were you thinking? Didn't I tell you that you should do this instead? Did you really think that this was going to work? So sometimes I'm just trying to help. It doesn't actually help. It just makes a husband feel disrespected. So ladies, you're going to have to learn your husband. There are some things that Katie knows I find to be very disrespectful that other husbands might not mind, and there are some things that I find to be respectful that other husbands might find to be disrespectful. For example, when I... By, raise your hand if it seems like I talk... Be, please be honest. Raise your hand if it seems like I talk too quickly. Okay, now that is an improvement because years ago, everyone in the room would have raised their hand, okay? So Katie used to sit in the middle of the aisle or sit on the end of the pew so she could lean out into the aisle with her hand when I was talking too quickly and she would go like this. That was her way of telling me to slow down. Because she knows all my stories, we go over sermons together, whenever I would start to say something that she thought I shouldn't or make a joke that would perhaps be inappropriate or hurtful, I'd be preaching and she would go like this. 
She'd even come to marriage conferences, and if she was here, you know, she'd, she would sit in the back and she would do this. So guess what I find these actions to be? Very helpful. They've helped me slow down. They've helped me avoid saying things that I thought were appropriate, that were inappropriate. But other people have went up to Katie and said, hey, you know, when your husband's preaching, I saw you going like this and like this. Doesn't that bother him? And she said, no. He, and I've had people come to me and say, hey, you're in the middle of preaching. Your, husband, your wife's making all these weird signs to you and everything. Doesn't that bother you? And I said, no, it doesn't. And so my whole point is, ladies, you need to understand your husband and what he finds to be respectful and what he finds to be disrespectful. And then le- this brings us to lesson two. Wives can love their husbands without respecting them. Wives can love their husbands without respecting them. You probably will not find many women who say that they don't love their husbands, but I have found plenty of women who cause their husbands to feel disrespected. You won't find many husbands who say they don't feel loved, but you will find many husbands who say they don't feel respected. So is it possible for a wife to love her husband without respecting him? Not only possible, it is actually biblical. There's only one, just to, just to reveal how much God's word emphasizes wives respecting their husbands and submitting to them, there's only one woman in all of scripture said to love her husband. I'm not saying there's not lots of other women who did love their husbands, but there's only one woman in scripture said to love her husband. Does anyone know who that is? It was Saul's daughter, Michael. 1 Samuel 18, 20, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. Even though Michael loved David, why is Sarah the one, as we talked about in our third message, plucked up out of the Old Testament and set down as the example for wives versus Michael being set down as that example? Because Michael also put on probably the most disrespectful display of a wife toward her husband in the entire Old Testament. We talked earlier about Sarah. She's chosen because she submitted to her husband. It says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear, or do not fear anything that is terrifying. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 6. All of the verses about Sarah, and there's no mention of her loving Abraham. 2 Samuel 6, we'll see why Michael's not the example for wives. She also gives us an example of what wives should not do. Here's the context. David recently became king. One of his first actions was bringing the ark into Jerusalem, his capital. The first time he tried, you probably remember this situation. He's bringing in the ark. It was supposed to be carried on men's shoulders on poles. The Philistines had returned the ark on a cart, and the Israelites kept it on a cart. They're bringing the ark into Jerusalem on a cart. The, the ark starts to tip. A man named Uzzah, who means well, reaches out to steady the ark and it ends up being killed. It brings the whole procession to a halt, which God had, did have to kill him because God had said that that's what would happen if people touched the holy things. And so then David becomes terrified. He sends the ark to the house of, the, of a man named Obed-Edom, and Obed-Edom ends up being blessed the entire time the ark was there, which shows that there was nothing wrong with the ark. It was just that uh, the Levites had not moved it like they were supposed to. So sometime later, David is going to attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem a second time. He is successful. It was a very joyful moment for him to have the ark in Jerusalem, and also because of how unsuccessfully the previous attempt had went. So this very wonderful, joyful moment. Look in 2 Samuel 6, verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window, so she wasn't even at the procession. That alone probably says something 
about Michael. She didn't have any children she had to be home with, but she was not part of the ark being brought in. She sees David leaping, King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she, this is Michael, she despised him in her heart. Now that sounds pretty strong, right? You could wonder why would Michael despise her husband simply because he's celebrating the ark being brought into Jerusalem. Maybe I'm being a little bit speculative, but I feel pretty strongly that this is probably what happened. She was Saul's daughter, and so she learned what a king should look like from her father. Her father, who was completely concerned with outward appearance while neglecting the inward. David was not concerned with outward appearance. He was concerned with inward appearance or matters of the heart, which is why he's called the man after God's own heart. So when David was in this parade, my suspicion is he didn't actually look good. He might have been kind of embarrassing himself a little bit. And so David sees Michael's behavior, thinks it's very unbecoming of a king. She knows her father would never act this way, and she does not like her husband, who is the king of Israel, behaving this way in front of all these people, kind of embarrassing himself because she thinks it's unbecoming of a king and beneath him. And as the, king, as the queen, maybe she thought that it made her look bad too. Now look at verse 20. David returns to bless his household. Michael, the daughter of Saul, comes out to meet David. Now pause here for a moment. David wants to return home. He wants to share some of his joy with his family. Michael could not even wait until David got into the house. She was so mad she ran out to confront him. There were times when I used to call students' parents at the end of at, when the school day was over and say, you know, your child had a bad day. Here's what happened. And my suspicion is when that child reached the driveway, there's going to be some mother who's going to launch out the front door and grab him before he could even get to the house. And I mention that because that's what I think of here. David could not even get to the house before Michael had to race out there and pounce on him like this little boy who's in trouble. And so ladies, I would ask, do any of you ever act this way? Do you ever pounce on your husband when he does something wrong? Do you ever make him feel like he's a little boy who's in trouble? Listen to her disrespect and ridicule. As verse 20 goes on, it says, she says, how glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncover themselves. She's, he wasn't, for some reason, people talk about David being naked. He wasn't naked or anything. He wanted to be on par with the priests that day. He didn't want to look above anyone else. And so he put on the humble adornment of the priests. He took off his kingly adornment. And Michael probably did not like that either. She wanted her husband to always look like the king, but on this day of celebration, he was content just to look like everyone else. <clears throat> now, before we read David's response, I want to point something out. This is a low point for him too. This is instructive for husbands as well. I'm definitely not behaving, be, uh, defending David's behavior here. Verse 21, he says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel. Do you think that might have stung a little bit? for David to point out to Michael that God had chosen him over her father. And it sounds a little prideful of him. Therefore, I'll play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and I will be humble in my own sight. So basically he says, you think this is bad, I can act even worse. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words held in honor and you can draw a little line out and write the word respect. This is probably the simplest and clearest definition of respect in all of Scripture, holding in honor. David said that if Michael... Now follow this. David said, 
Even if you don't respect me, plenty of other women will. Did you catch him say that to her? I'm not defending what David said here, but I'm telling you that what you're looking at here is one of the main causes of adultery. And I would never defend adultery. It's a heinous sin. But here's what happens. A man feels disrespected by his wife at home. He goes to the workplace, and there's a woman who listens to him, finds him interesting, laughs at his jokes, applauds the work that he does, makes him feel like he's an excellent employee. And then what does he think? Well, this woman respects me. Why doesn't my wife respect me? And then that's how the adulterous relationship begins, where a man is finding the respect from another woman that he did not find from his wife. Look at verse 23. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And this brings us to lesson three. Disrespect can change a husband's feelings toward his wife. Disrespect can change a husband's feelings toward his wife. In verse 23, it said, Michael had no children to the day of her death. I do not take this to mean that Micah was barren and could not have children because it seems that any time in the Old Testament a woman could not have children because she was barren, it says that. Here it just says she never had any children. And why is that? Because David had no relations with her after this. And did David, sadly, this is to his shame, not a credit to him, have other women that he could have relationships with? Yes. Could he ignore Michael? Could he neglect her sexually? Yes, there were other women that he could, he could satisfy himself with. And so my point, though, is that David chose to have nothing more to do with Michael after she disrespected him like this. And when a husband wants to be cruel to his wife, all he needs to do is neglect her. Again, this is a low point for him. Some men choose to be cruel to their wives like David was to Michael by being neglectful. If wives like we talked about in our last message, want husbands who are interested in them, learn them, understand them. One of the ways for a husband to be cruel is to ignore his wife, neglect her. It's bad for husbands to punish their wives like David punished Michael, just like it's bad for wives to disrespect their husbands like Michael disrespected David. But with that said, I want you to see how this one event seemed to change David's feelings toward Michael. I don't want to throw out too many names, so I'm going to try to uh, make this quick and just ask you to listen carefully. At the beginning of Second Samuel, even though Saul and Jonathan had died, David did not immediately receive the throne. He reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah, over two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, while there was this conflict between the house of David and the house of Saul, while the house of Saul was over the other ten tribes. Well, there was this one interesting moment when Saul's great general Joab, or Saul, excuse me, Saul's great general Abner, has a conflict with Saul's son Ishbosheth, who's the current king, and Saul's general, Abner, defects from Ishbosheth and wants to join David. So basically, like a sports analogy would be, it's like the MVP of the other team wants to come and join your team. If the MVP of the other team wants to come and join your team, that'd be a pretty wonderful moment for you, right? So look in 2 Samuel 3, verse 12. 2 Samuel, just a few chapters to the left. Verse 12, Abner has this conflict with Saul's son Ishbosheth. He wants to leave the house of Saul, join the house of David, and he sends messengers on his behalf to David. And he says, Whose is this land? Who does this land belong to? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. 
So incredibly, Saul's general said, if, I, if you allow me to come join you, I will bring all of the tribes under your rule. Because right now David's only over Judah and Benjamin. So Abner says, I'll bring the other 10 tribes so you can reign over the entire nation of Judah or Israel. But there was one condition. Look in verse 13. David said, good. I'll make a covenant with you. But there's one thing I require of you. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to, to see my face. So I just want you to notice this contrast, just a couple chapters apart. David desired Michael so strongly in 2 Samuel 3 that he would not even allow the enemy general to come and join him and bring the rest of the nation under his rule unless that general also brought his wife, Michael. Because if you remember, Saul had taken his daughter, Michael, from David when Saul became jealous of David. Then you reach 2 Samuel 6, and Michael had disrespected David so badly that whatever affection or interest he had in her was gone. But you can't say, well, maybe he was just never interested in her. Because a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 3, he wanted her so badly, he says, you can't even come and join me unless you bring her back to me. That's how much he wanted her. And so my point is, ladies, I'm not defending any mistreatment from your husband, but you can so disrespect your husband that it changes his feelings or affection toward you. Now, our last lesson for husbands, lesson for husbands can make respecting them easier. Husbands can make respecting them easier. So we talked that the command for husbands to love their wives is not conditional. It is an unconditional command. It does not contain the word if. It does not say husbands love your wives if, but at the end of that message, we talked about the potential for wives to be more lovable (laughs) or for wives to make it easier for their husbands to love them. Well, similarly, in Ephesians 5.33, there's no if. It does not say wives respect your husband's if. But along the same lines, can a husband make it easier or harder for his wife to respect him? A husband can definitely make it easier or harder for his wife to respect him. Generally, wives have trouble submitting to men that don't seem spiritual, that are not in God's word, that do not seem to be men of prayer, because the wife then doubts her husband's decision-making ability. But a, hu- but a wife has trouble respecting a husband when there's sin in his life. Let me say that one more time. A wife has trouble respecting a husband when that husband has habitual sin in his life. So brothers, I want to be honest with you. There could be a few wives in here, and the truth is that they want to respect their husband. But their husband is making it difficult for them. There could be wives who have been listening to me throughout this message, and they're saying, I want to respect my husband. I want to look up to him. I want to hold him in high regard. But if they could talk to me, they would say, but Pastor Scott, you don't know how he acts. You don't know about this sin in his life. You don't know how he treats our children. You don't know how he talks to me. You don't know the things that he looks at when nobody's around. So brothers, if you have unrepentant sin in your life, you are making it incredibly difficult for your wife to respect you. And I'm going to single out one sin in particular. Brothers, if you look at things that you shouldn't, 
you are making it near impossible for your wife to be able to respect you. I'm not going to say it's impossible because that would be shortchanging the gospel's ability to help us obey God's commands. But I am going to say it is incredibly difficult for wives to respect husbands who look at other women. And so if I'm describing you, I want to invite you to get help. Go to your elders, share this struggle with them, get some accountability on some software, you know, some, some uh, accountability software, get an accountability partner, get someone that can help you because brothers, if your wife knows that you look at things you shouldn't, there is a weight that rests on her that is almost impossible to lift regarding respecting you. Now, I want to conclude this lesson by saying this. Yes, wives are commanded to respect their husbands, but husbands can definitely make that easier or harder. Part of loving our wife, Ephesians 5.25 commands husbands to love their wives, and part of loving our wives as Christ loves the church is making it easier for our wives to respect us. There was this gentleman that, I got to be super um, vague, but he would have me preach in his church occasionally, and my wife and I had developed a friendship with him and his wife, and I'd even talked about marriage at that church, and then one, one day after we'd had a relationship for years and he had never said anything to me, his wife reached out, and he's older than me. This gentleman's older than me. This is not just a struggle that young men have. Older men can have too, and the wife, his wife said to Katie, I told my husband we need to get out of the ministry. I just cannot handle the hypocrisy anymore because I'm so sick of my husband getting up there preaching on Sunday while I know that he has this struggle looking at things that he shouldn't. And so it was so, so my whole, my point is it occurred to me, she can't respect him and she can't handle sitting there in the pew listening to him preaching while she knows that he looks at these things during the week. So brothers, if you have this struggle, then go ahead and seek out some elders or some help with it. Our final lesson that I hope can tie much of this together Lesson five, wives respect their husbands by making their spiritual leadership easier. Wives, you respect your husband by making your husband's spiritual leadership easier. Over the years, my wife's going to have a ladies' conference at the church in a a month or two, and I think she's going to invite me to speak because she's recognized how few women recognize how important they are in their husband's spiritual leadership. Many husbands are terrified to pray and read the word with their wife. So lady, let me say it one more time, ladies. Give me your attention because you might not know this. And I didn't know this. We project ourselves on others. So you can tell from this message, building a house is super intimidating to me. Standing up here and sharing God's word is not. But for many men, standing up here and sharing God's word would be super intimidating, but going out and building a house would not, right? So we project ourselves on others. So I assume, well, if I can do this, this must be an easy thing for men to do. But ladies, you're making, ladies, you're making the same mistake I'm making. You're assuming something's easy that's actually incredibly difficult. I, have ha- I had this one gentleman come up to me after this marriage conference, and he just says, I'm listening to what you're saying, but I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack because I'm so afraid of praying with my family or opening the word with them. So ladies, I want to give you three pieces of counsel. First, encourage your husband when he prays or reads scripture with you. Ladies, this is so important. Give me your attention. I don't care if your husband fumbles every single word that he reads when he opens the Bible with you. You still look at him and thank him for being a godly man. I don't care if he can't pronounce a single name and he can't answer a single question that he's asked. If he will open the Bible with his family, you make sure you look him in the eyes and thank him for being a godly spiritual leader. 
and tell him that you recognize that you are in the 0.000001% of the population that actually has a husband who will open the Bible with his family. So you hold his hand when you pray. You thank the Lord for giving you a godly man. You're going to be interested. I don't even care if he's in Leviticus. You're interested. (laughs) You look at him and you're like, I have never thought burnt offerings could be so interesting, honey. Thank you so much for talking about this with all of us. Whatever passage he's in, that is like your new favorite passage. If you have children, you encourage those children to express their appreciation. So you... My kids, I mean, you should just pray for them. They have to listen to me so much. They listen to me at church. They listen to me at conferences. They have to listen to me at home. I mean, it's almost like a heartbreaking thing, right? And so when I say, okay, we're going to do family worship, if my wife hears one kid groan, you would not believe how she jumps on that kid and lectures them about how blessed they are to have a father who will do this. And understand, my family Bible studies don't sound like this. It's reading a verse and then talking about it. There's nothing nothing extravagant or fancy about it, but my wife does not let any eye-rolling or huffing and puffing happen. And if it's in the middle of Bible study and one of the kids talks about it going on too long, then Katie is going to be the first one to jump in there and start rebuking that child. Second, avoid needless debate. This is a tough issue because, again, it's a balancing act like we kind of talked about earlier. I'm not discouraging wives from asking their husbands questions or even disagreeing with their husbands saying something wrong. But I will say this. If your husband thinks that he's going to have to debate with you every single time that he opens the Bible, then don't be surprised if he never wants to open the Bible with you. Kate and I were once counseling this couple, and there, she was a, the wife was a pretty spiritual woman, and it seemed that what she really wanted was for her husband to read the Word with his family. And he was a, he was a generally timid man, a, a godly man, but a timid one nonetheless. And I met with him privately. I didn't want to seem as though I was rebuking him in front of his wife. And I just said, hey, brother, listen, the truth is you're actually pretty fortunate. You've got a godly woman who wants you to read the word with her. You should be thankful for that. And I believe that if you will read the word with her, then it's really going to uh, improve your marriage because that seems to be her strongest desire. So a few weeks later, he comes to me with me and I can just read on his face how grieved, how grieved he was. And I said, did you read the word with your family? He said, yeah, I, I did. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I'm never doing it again because when I opened the Bible with her, all she wanted to do was criticize me, disagree with everything that I said, and act like everything I was saying was wrong. And so I'm never going to, so ladies, if that's what your husband has to expect from you, then don't be surprised if he doesn't want to read the Bible with you. So let me say it like this. Ladies, if you're going to make any withdrawals, you need to make sure you've made a bunch more deposits. You need to make sure your husband feels encouraged and built up. Third, do not compare for any reason. I have met husbands who do not want to read the Bible or pray in front of their wives because they're afraid of that wife's reaction. They're afraid that they're not going to sound like Pastor Allen or they're not going to sound like that guy on the radio. And so there's a husband who's sitting at... See, I'm given so much time to study God's word to prepare these messages, it is completely unfair that a wife would ever compare her husband with someone in full-time ministry. Not only that, some men have the gift of teaching and some don't, and a man is not better or worse if he does or doesn't have the gift of teaching. So how unfair is it for a woman to compare her husband who might not have the gift of teaching with a man who does have the gift of teaching? 
and your husband is already afraid that he is not, and so the guys that end up on the radio, these guys, your husband thinks he has to sound like them. How intimidated is he? And so if you come into Bible study together, and you say, well, you know, that's not quite what the guy on the radio said. Do you have any idea what you're doing to your husband when you say something like that? How difficult you're going to make it for him to open the word with you? So never compare your husband with other men. The last thing any husband needs to hear is that he doesn't sound like John MacArthur or Billy Graham or someone else. The power is in God's word, not in your husband's teaching ability. If your husband is reading scripture with his family, you need to trust that it's going out, washing over the family members and doing that work, that spiritual cleansing and sanctification. When Kitty and I first got together, I really wanted to press her and press her. I thought she was a spiritual woman. And so it's going to be like our first Bible study. And so I super built it up and decided that I was going to teach her the relationship between a passage, I think it was the account of, of um, Jerusalem being sieged by the Assyrians, which is recorded in Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and Isaiah. And I'm going to tie together these three passages for one study. And so we begin this study, and it wasn't impressive. It was mostly just confusing, I think. And so when my wife and I finished this study, like 17 hours later, um, I don't think that it made me look good. I think it made me look silly. And so later that day, I can hear Katie on the phone with her friend. And, this is, and so we're going back 17 years, and I can still remember her vividly telling her friend, I am so thankful to have a man that will read the word with me. That's what she said. And it's been an encouragement to me since then that she's never made me feel silly when I've had have confusing Bible studies, that she's never talked down to me or criticized me when Bible studies haven't went as well as I've wanted them to, and we've had plenty like that. So I want to ask you to picture something. I want you to imagine there's a man who's really convicted about reading the Bible with his family. He knows he should, but he's terrified. He's got all these questions. What if I make a mistake? What if I don't know what to say? What if my wife or my children ask me a question I can't answer? Where should I start? What book should I go to? What if I don't sound like the pastor on the radio or at church? But he's been summoning up all his courage while he's at work, and he has decided that today is the day. When he gets home from work, his family's going to have dinner together like they normally do, and then everyone's going to get up and race away from the table. But he is going to say, let's try something different tonight. I want all of you to go get your Bibles and bring them back to the table so we can read them together. So you fast forward a few hours. The family finishes dinner. The husband's heart is racing. The kids are getting up to race away from the tables. But he says, wait, 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 hold up a second. Please get your Bibles. We're going to do something different tonight. We're going to read a passage together. Now imagine his wife says, do we have to do this right now? I want to get the table picked up. Is that the version of the Bible that you're going to use? Can't we use this one instead? Is that the passage that we're going to read? Why did you have to pick this one? I don't know if the kids are going to understand it. Is that really how you're supposed to pronounce his name? I was listening to this sermon on this passage, and the guy that was talking about it didn't say quite that about this verse. I'm not sure that that's right. When we get to church on Sunday, why don't you ask the pastor? You know, when Pastor Scott was talking at that marriage conference about what it should be like when we read the Bible together as a family, I'm not really sure that this is what he had in mind. Or maybe, well, this first Bible study sure is long. And I mentioned that one because one time there was this couple, another couple I had encouraged to read the Bible together. You can tell it's kind of one of my things for families to worship during the week. I really push family worship. 
And so this couple comes in for counseling, and I tell them, you need to go home and read the Bible together. They come in the next week, and they did read the Bible together. And again, it was another gentleman that found this to be, he was t- found this to be probably terrifying, but he took the Bible out with his family. I was proud of him. And so I set up his wife. I lobbed this across the plate. This is like for her to hit a home run. And I said, I heard that your husband did Bible study this week. How did it go? And I'm setting her up to be able to say, oh, it was wonderful. Oh, I'm so thankful for this. Oh, I've been praying for this. Oh, I can't wait for this to happen. And she says, well, it sure was long. And I was just like, I can't remember another time that I felt that upset with a woman, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and I thought, that's what you're going to say when your husband summoned up all his courage to read the Bible with his family. Your sentiment is this first Bible study sure is long. Now picture this, the same man, the same situation, the same fear. The family finishes dinner. The husband tells everyone to get their Bibles. And his wife says, I am so excited. This is such an answer to prayer. I have been waiting for this for so long. I am proud of you. I have been praying that God would give you the strength to do this. I know that not many men will read the Bibles with their families. I, so, I feel so blessed to have you as my husband. I know how many women would love to be in my place. Thank you for doing this with us. What if she looks at her children and she says, isn't this great? What a great daddy you have who will open the Bible with us as a family. And then at the end of the Bible study, they pray and her husband prays and he's nervous, but then his wife prays and she reaches over and she grabs his hand and she says, Lord, I'm so thankful to have such a godly man. Thank you that he will open the Bible with us. We are so blessed. Please help him to lead our family well. He has such a huge responsibility on his shoulders. You have called me to be his helper. Please help me to help him. Now, how do you think that husband is going to feel after a family worship like that? So brothers, this is the call that's on us as husbands. The wives, hopefully you can see the very strong part that you play in your husband's spiritual leadership in the home regarding supporting him. Now, thank you. All right, I finished right on time. Thank you all. You guys have been a great, great group to be able to address. Thank you for the invitation to come here, Pastor Allen and other elders from, from Northwest Bible. Uh, I'll be at my booth and I'll, or my table. I'd love to hang around until I can answer all the questions that a- any of you have. And I hope to see some of you uh, tomorrow at worship service. So thank you for the privilege of being able to share God's word with you like this. God bless you guys.